Welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. Winners of 10 Emmy Awards and veterans of PBS, ABC, and CNN, co-directors Karen Zucker and John Donvan have been telling stories centered on autism for more than two decades. Their new film, In a Different Key, is based on their book of the same title, a narrative account of autism's history that became a New York Times bestseller and Pulitzer Prize finalist. As two producers and journalists with personal connections to autism, Karen and John have worked to inspire acceptance of and support for people on the autism spectrum by telling their stories with honesty and compassion. Built around a fascinating discovery that the first child diagnosed with autism is now in his ninth decade living in a small town in Mississippi, the movie highlights the exemplary way his community embraced and included him. Here's a clip. I've always known Don. I don't remember not knowing Don. We knew that Don was a little different, different but what it was, we didn't know. They call him Don. But I first knew him as Donald. Donald T. That's how his name appeared, over 70 years ago. It was in the first medical article that fully described a new diagnosis in children that we call autism. And in that article that described several children, Donald Gray Triplett was described in way more detail than the others. And he came first. He was literally case number one. And how did life turn out for him? How much did he get to belong? To grow, to love, to be loved. Autism's first child. The stories of In a Different Key add up to a common sense realization that autism is just one more wrinkle in the fabric of humanity and that none of us gets through life unwrinkled. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers of all stripes with its array of benefits and services. Visit FC at filmmakerscollab.org to learn more. And if you're enjoying these conversations, please remember to subscribe, review, and share. And now to my conversation with Karen Zucker and John Donvan. So joining me now are Karen Zucker and John Donvan, the co-producers and co-directors of a just-completed documentary called In a Different Key. The documentary is a, I would say, a what, a, a spinoff, a sequel, an addendum to a nonfiction book that each, the, the two of you partnered on uh, back in 2016. I would say that the book was a jumping off point for the documentary, for the film. So were you thinking book, of a documentary as you were writing the book? No, but, we, but I had always thought that we should do a documentary. Because that's where we come from. We come from, from we, we spent 20 years producing stories on autism. 
And so the book was our first book. Yes, exactly. Okay. So that's a, that's an excellent way to roll into uh, some introductory um, information for each of you. So Karen, I know that your broad, your uh, background is a, as a broadcast journalism uh, journalist rather, and a producer. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. I spent about 20, about 25 years at ABC news um, the evening news and on Nightline, where about 20 years ago, John and I started to produce stories on autism after my son was diagnosed with autism and had a special beat. We were still doing our regular jobs covering news, but it was something we focused on. Um, and then um, left ABC and did a, an autism series for um, TBS NewsHour with Robin McNeil. And some other things in between. And then John and I, um, in, in the meet, in the middle of that, we had decided to, to, to actually do a book. Um, so the book took us a very, very long time, about seven years in total, um, from, from conception to finish. And then we rolled right into the movie after the, we actually, we actually, if you want to know, we, we had always thought we would do a documentary, but what happened was John, should I share the story about um, the call what we got from uh, sure. yeah. Yeah. brother? So we had always we had always felt like we were going to do a documentary. And we we in fact, when we were reporting on the book, we had shot some video of of Donald, the first person ever diagnosed with autism, just so we'd have it. But um, uh, I don't know, three or four years ago, we got a call before the end of the year from Donald uh, Triplett's brother uh, telling us that, that Don was in ICU and that he'd had a really great life, but he was probably going to pass away. And we just, besides that, um, we were, you know, devastated to hear that. We thought, Oh gosh, this history, like we blew it. We, we, we've never went there and, um, and, and shot his story. And, um, you know, Donald actually wasn't ready to go and he's still, alive and well today at 87. And as soon as he was better, we thought we better do this movie. There was your impetus to begin. Yeah. Yeah. And John, just for our listeners, uh, bring them up to speed on, on your background. Uh, Before I do that, could I, just in case it wasn't clear who, why we were so concerned about Donald, just so people can follow the rest of the conversation. Donald's a major character in our movie, and he was the first child ever diagnosed with autism. And he's an elderly man now. And that's why it was so important for us to get him while he was still alive. Of course. Um, so, I mean, um, that was why it was really such a big deal for us. And he was a major character in the book also. And um, I, was, uh, I got to know him because I was partnering with Karen, who asked me to work with her as a correspondent on the autism pieces that she wanted ABC News to cover. So I'd been with ABC News for a long time by then already. I started my career uh, in broadcasting in New England, actually, in uh, Connecticut and Maine. I worked at radio and TV stations there. And then I went to ABC back in uh, 1979. I went to ABC as as an intern and ended up working for them overseas for a long time. So I was a foreign correspondent. And for many years, that's how I defined myself. But then I came back home uh, about... 25 years ago. So I don't feel like a foreign correspondent anymore, but, uh, I, I worked uh, at ABC for nightline for a long time. I was the white house correspondent and then, uh, started working with Karen on this autism beat that we designed. And, um, as she said, she brings us up to speed on that. Then we decided to, to do a book about it. And neither of us knew how to write a book. 
So it took way longer than it should have, but we were very happy with how the book turned out and we wanted to do more with it. So prior to the autism series for ABC or the autism pieces that you did for ABC, had the two of you worked together? Yeah, we did actually. We, we worked together on general assignment stuff. So we began working around 1995 together and we, you know, we traveled the country and we did all kinds of things. And, um, and the autism part of it only came in after Karen's son, Mickey, was diagnosed in 1997. Right, Karen? Was the year of his diagnosis? 90, 90, the end of 96. Yeah. Yeah. So he was a little boy then. I mean, really a little boy. He was two, three years old. And now, now enough time has gone by. If you put the math together, he's 26 years old now. What was it about your working relationship uh, that gave each of you the confidence that, you know, it could endure the time necessary to write a book and to make a, a documentary? Because, you know, each of these undertakings require an awful lot of time commitment without killing each other. You mean? Yeah, that too. That helps. Yeah. And you're well, both here. We have evidence that neither one of you have killed the other, but it's, it was a close call. Many, yeah. many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I want to hear about. I, 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 well, it's true, but um, we have, you know, had a lot of creative differences and we, we approach everything from kind of an opposite point of view. And Karen has a, an energy and uh an optimism and um, a determination that impossible can happen that I don't have. I, I think I'm a little bit more, I think maybe my thing approach to things is a little bit more um, cerebral and analytical. And part of being analytical is I see the things that can go wrong and I always want to calculate those into the mix. And so Karen says it a lot. It's because, because of the differences that we think we're actually a good team and, and the differences are real. And, so, and, and it's not always easy f to be honest. I mean, the the last don't be too honest <laughs> well the, no but we we had disagreements about how to make the movie work and um we kind of came to the conclusion that it, it, it comp you can't compromise that's not you know going halfway between is not necessarily a thing so we it took a long time to work out work it out but we worked it out so that the film is something that we both really do like and really both believe in i think i started it which was 20 some five years ago, 24 years ago, we were, we were working together, um, doing stories. We traveled to Mississippi, civil rights stories, just whatever we were assigned to do. And then when Mickey got diagnosed, I, you know, I wanted the smartest, most creative, um, best storyteller I knew to help me get the story out. And so I asked John and he sort of, for some crazy reason has stuck with it ever since. And given that your son is so integral to the, um, uh, the film itself, was it difficult for you to separate the personal from the, from the professional in, in your role in the film? It wasn't my plan to have, uh, to be in it or to have my son in it. And it was, it was, it was John's idea because he thought it would be better storytelling to have a real person. And I had never been, I had never done anything on camera um, or I'd always been the producer. I'd always been behind the scenes. So it wasn't something, and it was, and the answer to your question, very difficult to do. Very difficult. And what were, what were your biggest concerns going into that? Well, I just didn't, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be on camera. I don't like public speaking. Okay. <laughs> no, maybe hard to believe, but I, I really don't like to be in front of the camera and I don't like to speak in front of people. And so 
so that was like the first hurdle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist and I'm a producer. I know what it means when you go into somebody's life. And I just, that wasn't on my list of things to do, but bigger than that was trying to make a difference in the world for people with autism. So given the um, challenges of autism that the, the subjects of the film uh, contend with on a daily basis, how did you come to communicate to them, you know, the, the purpose of your kind of immersing yourself in their lives for a sizable period of time and, you know, making them comfortable with your presence, but not overly aware of things like the camera and, you know, all of those necessary steps that come with making a documentary film? Well, I think I think some of it was um, they knew that John and I were and always always have been committed to the community. And that I, I do think as a as a as a journalist who was also a mom, um, that it it helped people to to trust us. John also has a brother-in-law with autism. He would say that's not why he did all this work, but it also gives him an, an insight sure. um, and personal knowledge. John, any thoughts on um on on drawing that line between sort of professional remove and personal uh, well, engagement? Uh, well, when I mentioned that Karen and I had disagreements, one of, one of the big disagreements was about having the film structured through the lens of of Karen herself as a journalist who is investigating the story of autism and the treatment of people with autism out of a concern for how the world would treat her own son. And so persuading Karen to take part was, that was a big leap. And And I actually see it as a very, very courageous thing that she's done to do this. And then Karen is very protective of her son, Mickey. And as you can see, when you watch the film, Mickey's really, really vulnerable. We wanted to make sure that Mickey was consenting to this also, and that he kind of got it. So, so he did, but there were times when we were shooting when Mickey just, you know, he'd had enough. He just didn't want to be filmed anymore. And so that was our deal. We backed off. And if he had any, you know, really, you know, moments that would, you know, nobody would want to have on camera about themselves. We would just wouldn't shoot that. We would, we would abide by and respect his reference, his preferences on that. So we did do that. So I think one reason, and so when you ask about the autistic people in the movie, you know, agreeing to be on camera, knowing that they were on camera, that question is most prevalent, most relevant to Mickey, because he's the character with autism who's seen most frequently. And so that was our ground rule. If Mickey said enough, that was enough. And um, other people in the film, like John Robeson and Amy Gravino, who who really have become friends of ours, who are both on the spectrum, you know, we had extensive conversations with them about what our intentions were and how the interviews would go. And so we didn't, no trick questions and no sandbagging people. We really wanted to tell their story. So I think that's really how we navigated. It was just by being very transparent, being as sensitive as we could by respecting the wishes of the people whose story we were telling to tell it in a way that they would be comfortable with. What's fascinating about the film is that each of the people depicted, it seemed to be in different places uh, on the spectrum. And it's, it's really fascinating that the author, John Robeson, I mean, I could hear him talk for 15, 20 minutes and I would never have come away thinking that, you know, this man has autism. Did you set about almost casting the uh, the participants with autism to to depict a wide range of uh, of people on the spectrum or is that more happenstance? 
It was very deliberate that we wanted to show the range of the spectrum and that there are people with very severe autism that usually do not have a voice or are not heard um, and not, not even researched that much anymore. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, people like John who, you know, are really fine human beings, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very long line between one end and the other. I, I was wondering if a person say today is on, is in one place on the spectrum, is the, the thinking that that is where they're going to remain? Do, you know, do people with autism, do they exhibit evolve. fewer signs? Yeah, evolve would be the, the perfect word for that. It's complicated. The, the, the bottom line answer is that the spectrum is a very, very um, kind of a soft concept. And pinpointing anybody at any particular point on the spectrum is a challenging thing to do because so many factors go into it. But to answer your question, you can't say that if somebody has at one point in their life at some particular point as defined on the spectrum is going to be at that point later on in life for, you know, you look at Donald Triplett, the main character in the film. Uh, I don't want to give away too much about where it goes, but suffice to say that he, his communication and social skills were so limited when he was a child that he began life in an institution and his behaviors became the template on which the definition of autism was defined. Later in his life, he was not quite like that anymore in a lot of ways. And, and what that reflects is that he, he grew and he changed and he had the opportunity to grow and change. Then there's just also the fact that people on the spectrum, like anybody, will go through all sorts of phases in life and and get good at some things and not as good at things as they used to be as they age and change and get educated and make friends and have social experiences. And then there are people on the spectrum who who work very hard at the term is often used as masking that they are working to to not let neurotypical people. It's just the term used to describe people who don't have, uh, who, who have the sort of the standard neurology, let's put it that way, to, to fit in, they'll mask what they're doing. So, you know, I think John Robeson would say that that's something he's had to do in life, that he has to kind of cover up for his uh, autisticness and his autistic behaviors. Uh, and there's kind of a move of, you know, going on for people to not have to do that anymore. Why should I have to do that to conform? So that's a sort of source of tension. And the and question I would imagine that, yeah. that, that doing that would presuppose the ability to do that. A, yeah. A certain del, you know, uh, del, um, uh, and, and motivation level of functioning. You have to be yeah. a certain level of, you, you have to, you have to have a capacity to do that, to do that. So Karen, as the, as the mother of, of a, of an autistic son during his journey with autism, uh, have you received feedback, medical feedback, anybody giving any, any indication that, you know, we know he's here today, but based on what we, what we've learned and based on, uh, best practice research, we think he could be here tomorrow. Does that type of diagnostic or prognostic, um, uh, there's not, there's not a prognosis. Um, what there is, is, you know, you're, you know, very early on, a few things happen and the children that get early intervention will, will do better. And it, it varies. There's some, you know, there's, there's some discrepancy on what is the very best. 
we did what um, we thought it was the very best sort of early intervention. And it is the standard now. It wasn't then when we started. And there is also, so there's no way to know. The, the bottom line of your question is, is there's no way to know how much somebody will progress. But they do know that if, if a child has language who has okay. autism, those children tend to do better. Um, so, you know, I actually, because my son had language and because he had what's called hyperlex, hyperlexia, which is an ability to, um, to, he was hyperlexic, which means you can read, but not necessarily understand. So at like one, one and a half, he was reading books and reading signs on the street. And so we thought before we knew he had autism, we thought, wow, we have this really smart. Wow. So reading and pronouncing the words. Yeah. Wow. But, but we didn't even know he had autism in it. So what happened to us as a family is we thought, okay, we got this, you know, we're going to do early intervention and he's going to grow you know, up and he's going to be, you know, quote unquote typical. And, um, you know, he's, he's, he's Mickey, he has autism. And so, you know, you don't know, and you can, you can do, you know, everything. But the one thing we do know for sure is that early intervention makes a big difference in all across the spectrum. Mm -hmm. But after that, it's kind of, you know, yeah, the, the, the film does a great job in pointing out, um, the, the, the value and the role of a nurturing environment and a almost a protective environment. Could, could you all speak about that for a bit? Well, we focus on the community where Donald grew up because his community was, was a pretty good model for acceptance of somebody who was different. And, um, we think the reason for that is that the, the people who are his peers, again, he's in his late eighties now, um, so a lot of his peers have passed away, but those people, you know, for, for almost 90 years, they've known Donald, they got used to him. And, you know, that's the way inside families too. A any family where there's disability, the family members are very, very comfortable and acclimated to the disability to the point where it actually becomes kind of irrelevant. And, and that was an experience I went through when I married my wife and met her brother, who's very, very profoundly challenged by autism, no language and can't take care of himself. Mm -hmm. And, um, when I met him for the first time, it was at a family gathering, a big family dinner. I didn't know how to relate to him because he wasn't behaving in a way that I had any kind of connection to. And, you know, he was making sounds at me. I didn't know how to respond to that. I wasn't particularly comfortable, but like in a, within 15 minutes, I changed in that regard because I saw how his family acted towards him, which was completely normal. It was just, you know, if they, also they had a better sense of what the kinds of sounds he was making meant and they knew what his needs were. And the cousins were just sort of like had their arms around him at the dinner table and were helping him get food and things like that as well without making a big deal of it. They were doing, they were having their other conversations simultaneously watching out for him. And I saw that happen and really had a, a through osmosis, a powerful impact on me. And I think communities, if, if that can happen outside the family in a larger community setting, that that's great too. And Donald's community represents that. What we're trying to do with the film is to say, let's make that even bigger. Let's sure. make it not just a family and let's not make just this little town that, that Donald grew up in, but let's make it, let's open the doors to this, to that whole outside world. And that's, I think that's re really what the film wants to get across. 
the the um, the segment with the, um, the the young man named Nick who had the the run in with law enforcement. He was looking into cars. That was just shocking. You know, the response and also just so shockingly relevant to so much that has been in the news of late where mm-hmm. people dealing with um, generically speaking, mental illness are are often mistaken for being uh, obstructionist or um, you know being aggressive toward toward law enforcement, and I, I think that uh, you know your film does a, a a great job in in portraying that mother's really compassionate outrage. I mean, she she was justly outraged, but you could just also see the compassion for her son in that in that situation. How was that story brought to light to you guys? Um, John? Or- I was waiting for you. I, I was waiting for Karen because Karen is the, is the member of our team who reported that story. And Oh, okay. So it, went, it, it took place in Alaska and Karen's, Karen went there with a film crew to get the background story on it. But, um, but, we, but we, found the, we found the story online. Okay. I think you found it, actually. And we just knew we needed to, to talk to that family to see what happened. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's a huge issue and it's, and that's something that's even, you know, a a much scarier, scarier issue for people of color. Of course. Um, Because, you know, if, if Nick had not been white, who knows, you know, what would have happened. And it's, um, you know, it's something that I think about a lot that my son can get himself into situations and, and has in fact, um, that are, are, could really get him into a lot of trouble. And, um, and that's where, that's why the, the movie matters also is mm-hmm. so that, you know, anybody watching it will sort of kind of, it's one of the many messages, but we need to understand people with autism. We need to identify them. You know, people need to be trained. Um, you know, the, it's not just the, the police force that needs to be trained. We who have uh, children who are different have to teach them if they're out in the community, if we're letting them go out in the community, they have to have some way to protect themselves. And so it's, it's a parent's responsibility to do that as well. So it's it's big. Because it's sort of a perfect storm of misunderstanding between an autistic person. Again, autism is different in every group, every individual, but, but there are large numbers of autistic people who, who will have trouble answering a question and who will have trouble looking somebody in the eye and who will run away when frightened. So if they encounter a cop and the cop asks them a question and they're not looking the cop in the eye, that triggers in the cop, something's wrong here. So they're refusing to answer a question. And if the cop suddenly says something and the person runs away, that triggers in the cop, oh, this person's guilty of something. So the cop, it doesn't have to be a bad cop to, to completely misread that situation. Sure, right. And then at the same time, the cop's going to do things that will, that will trigger, you know, putting, putting the hands on, putting hands on an autistic person can really cause an over, sensory overload and a kind of meltdown. So it's a perfect storm for, for like the absolute worst to happen between a completely innocent autistic person and, and, and a completely, um, you know, non-malicious cop because of the misunderstanding. Karen, we, have, we have to educate people. We have, you know, I mean, that's how you stop that. Karen, what is your, what's your thoughts on sort of net, a network, port network for parents of autistic children? Do they, do they exist and what role do they play in 
helping you understand and cope and adjust and educate yourself and the people around you? I think that's a real, really a personal choice. And the, given that the spectrum is so large, there are, you know, hundreds of different organizations and hundreds of different kinds of supports. There are supports for people with autism who have autism. There, there are organizations that, you know, just cater to that. There are, you know, when, when, you know, 20 something years ago, what is today wasn't (laughs) then there was very little. Um, so, you know, my experience isn't the experience um, that somebody will have today. In fact, you know, kind of weeding through what's, you know, what's right and what's, um, what's not is probably, you know, more difficult than anything things that you should do because there's so much on the internet. There's so, you know, you have to know what are the organizations that are the right organizations to reach out to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a, there's a ton out there now. The film um, also touches upon uh, how autism is portrayed in pop culture. Uh, in particular, there's a, there's a segment looking into the Dustin Hoffman character in Rain Man. Can, can you talk a little bit about how that has been helpful and also maybe a bit harmful as to how uh, autism and autistic people are perceived. Yeah, that movie uh, came out in 1988 or 89. And at the time there had been a very, very few, very few depictions of autistic people over the years um, on television. We found one in an old Elvis movie actually, but there really hadn't been a deep, a deep, and, and, and thoughtful portrayal of an autistic person as the central character until Dustin Hoffman played Raymond, Raymond Babbitt. And the movie had an enormous impact. Number one, because it was such a good movie. It was so well done and won so many awards. It was Best Picture and Dustin Hoffman won, I believe, one Best Actor. Mm-hmm. It was really, really well done. It was very thoughtful. And it was a very, very good portrayal of an individual who has autism. The problem is that everybody who has autism has it in a different way. It's the opening line of our movie. The number of ways to have autism is infinite. And so, yes, it was a really good portrayal. And, and most of us, including me, had never heard of autism until this movie came out, or maybe very barely. But now we had a picture of autism. It's Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. Oh, that's what autism is. Sure. Well, that's what so many people thought. That's what autism is. And so everybody thought that autism was exactly what... Dustin Hoffman portrayed that Raymond Babbitt's autism was autism and it wasn't the case. So on the one hand, it raised awareness of the, of what autism was. We heard from so many people who had raised children in the sixties and early seventies before that movie came out, who told us the same story again and again. Oh, I told my family, I told my friends that my son is autistic. Oh, he's artistic. That's wonderful. People didn't even know the word. They couldn't hear it. So Rayman changed that. But at the same time, it created this impression that that was exactly what autism looked like in everybody. So there's a famous scene, which we reprise in our film, where Raymond uh, or a bunch of toothpicks are spilled on the floor and Raymond glances at them and accurately counts them in a second. And so a lot of people tell us the story again from that era. Well, after that whole scene with the toothpicks, my friends were always asking me, how good is, you know, how good is my son? How good is my daughter accounting toothpicks? Are they, can they do the toothpick thing? Well, the answer is no. Almost nobody with autism or anybody can count toothpicks by looking at them. So on the one hand, it was a big breakthrough. And on the other hand, it kind of limited the portrayal of autism. 
Yeah. And, and since his portrayal, there have been a handful of other characters, either on television and in movies. But I would also imagine that given the, the fact that there is such disparity along the spectrum, no one character can be representative of autism. Yeah. That's absolutely yeah, the, right. The difference now is that, um, you know, almost all, not all, not everyone, but almost all of the characters represented now are very high functioning. Um, and so that's also a problem, you know, because the spectrum is so broad. So all you do is what you see are the people that um, can, you know, off, often can lead independent lives and that are um, capable of uh, working and, and things that, you know, just many people with autism aren't. So, so now we're getting that other, now that other view of what autism is, which is also, um, problematic in terms of understanding the entire spectrum. I can remember reading some early reviews of Rain Man and his character was actually described as a savant. Yeah. Yes. And that is, that is a, that, that, you know, there are people with autism that have savant skills and that's a better movie. Is it difficult in this day and age to write a book and to make a documentary about autism and at least in the film, um, not have to address the controversy around vaccines? <laughs> I w it's interesting. I was thinking about five minutes ago that vaccines hadn't come up. And uh, I think our answer to that question is we wish that question wouldn't come up. And it always sure. comes up. And it always comes up. And we addressed it in the book because our, our publisher said, you can't write a book about autism and the history of autism and not address vaccines. First of all, our feeling on that is the, the clear part that we would state, and we said in the book, and we'll say it forever, uh, vaccines don't cause autism. And that was the claim that was being made in the years 2000, 2004, five, six, was that there was a massive spike in autism in the United States. And it was because there was a massive increase in the number of vaccines that children were being given compared to like 15 years before. Independently, both those things are true. There, there, there was an increase in the number of diagnoses being given out, which is different from the number of actual cases. It means that these were people actually getting seen and getting the diagnosis. And there had been an increase in the number of vaccines that children were being given at a young age. Those two things happened at the same time. That didn't mean those two things were interrelated and causing each other. So you didn't have to be crazy to think maybe that was what was going on. It's, I, I always wanted to be careful that families who had that belief were often put down by, by, um, by journalists and by even by science as being, you know, not, you know, that they were just, they were just weren't being smart to believe that it, it made sense to, to, to ask that question and to investigate it. The point is it was investigated and it was, it was put to bed. Now that, at the same time, that doesn't mean that some extremely small number of people might be injured by a vaccine. There's a, there's a, a system in place to compensate people who are injured by vaccines because some small number will be uh, injured in all kinds of different ways by a vaccine, the same way that they would be injured by penicillin. There are people who have very bad re reactions to penicillin because of their particular makeup. That doesn't mean penicillin is killing people you know, penicillin kills, it would be an, an incorrect statement. Or nor does it mean can't penicillin should be pulled off the shelves. It's really a question of odds. So the reason that we wish we didn't have to have addressed it 
is that it's kind of a side story to what's going on with autism, but it's still out there. And um, <laughs> yeah, I asked the question. I asked the question more to get a sense of, you know, as as authors and as as journalists and filmmakers, I'm sure each of you have a sense that whether it deservedly so, and you know, there's no science to back it up. Unfortunately, if you were to create like this Venn diagram and putting all of these words. Unfortunately, there's this perceived overlap between the two. And I'm, I was curious well, how you sort of prepare yourselves um, to address while not getting caught up in the sideshow, as you say. Yeah. Well, I well, think that in the movie, the, the goal is not to. We're, we're, we're not going there. Um, it's not the stories of autism that we feel are important to tell in trying to essentially, you know, open people's eyes to um the world of autism yeah. we, we've heard that story and we we talked about it because we were doing uh, a history of autism in the book and this is not a history there's you know there's a handful of minutes there's a dozen minutes or so of history or a bit more but we we don't want to that's that's not our movie our movie isn't about vaccines mm -hmm. Because autism is not about vaccines. The only thing we did say in the book, we said two things put autism on the map in the public's consciousness. One was Rain Man, which we just talked about. And the other one was in the early 2000s when people got scared to death that vaccines caused autism. Suddenly a whole lot more people, what is autism? And they got scared of it. And it was, a, it was totally a false alarm. So in the book, we make the case that if there's any silver lining to the whole autism scare is that it raised awareness about autism, but in the most negative way. Sure. So given each of your, your backgrounds, you're, you, both of you are very familiar with the rigors of, you know, storytelling and the time it takes and et cetera. Despite that, what, what took place in the making of the documentary that was tougher than you thought it was going to be easier than you thought it was going to be? Was anything easier than you thought it was going to be? What, um, what rang through as the big difference between, you know, producing a package for network television versus a, an almost two hour documentary film. Everything. They're very different genres. Um, the only similarity is that they're, that, the, that what we tried to do as, as journalists when we did stories on autism was to tell a story to, so that people could, could feel um, what we were saying as opposed, you know, and not just, not just the facts, but to reach them, you know, in a, in, in, in their hearts so that they would maybe digest it better. Um, that to me, that's the only similarity because, um, you know, you have deadlines when you're doing a news story and you don't get to do it over and over and over again. It's a, it's a, it's, it looks the same in some ways, but, um, it's also more of an art form, a, a documentary and, um, news is not supposed to be that it's supposed to be, you know, just the facts right. with, with a, with, with, you know, with hopefully some flair, but you're not, you don't, you don't get to choose what stories you tell. Mm -hmm. um, and we tried to, we tried to still do the documentary as journalists. So in, in a very unbiased way, mm -hmm. um, you know, but it's everything from using music. We got Wynton Marsalis to do the score. I noted that. How did, how did you arrange that? That's a, that's a great get. It's a great story. And it's your story, Karen. This would be the time to share it. Um, I mean, Winton has a brother with uh, autism. Oh, wow. And I knew that. 
And so I tried to track him down and ask him to do it. And that's kind of, that's the story. You, You wrote him, you wrote him an incredible email about autism and your son and why you felt getting the story of our film, the message of our film out there would be important. And I see, you know, as I, I might've said earlier that I'm the more, Karen's the optimistic one and I'm not. And I said, are you kidding? He's never going to answer this email. And four days later, the answer basically came back in like one sentence. Yes. I, something like I'd be happy to do it. I, I think it, it just came back really fast. And then. But the other thing is that Winton's a really good man. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he, he chose to, he wanted to make a difference too. I mean, he listened to portions of our film and literally wrote the score so that they, that you would have that feeling that we were trying to create. It was, it was really extraordinarily generous of him. It's a a great score. It's so engaging with the, the, the pace of the film too. And the day it was recorded, we recorded it in New York city um, where he lives and works. And he had, for musicians, four of his best students come to this uh, recording studio. And he came. And um, and before, and it turned out he had written all the music the night before. Wow. Which was just unbelievable when we heard wow. it. Wow. Yeah. And then, and he said, um, he sat down with the musicians ahead of time and he talked with them about autism first. And he said, I, I want you to get some insight to this music because I have an autistic brother. And there's one pitch particular piece in the movie that we use and he called it arithmetic and he talked about the importance of numbers to his brother and how they work how his mind works and so it was really really interesting to hear him talk about his brother and talk about the relation how he he was trying to express his brother's autism through the music and he wanted the musicians to get it and it Mm -hmm. was really really we made a promise to him that day which he 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 wasn't dressed as he is always wearing a three piece suit everywhere you see him. That day he was in sweats. Okay, and we so we so we took some group photos. We said, "Can we please take some photos?" He said, "Yes," but I never want these photos to be seen in public because I'm not wearing a three piece suit. So we have great photos that you can never show anyone. We can't ever show anyone. No, no. <laughs> so now the film is the film is complete. What is the plan for distribution and uh, how are people going to be able to get to see this great movie? Well, we finished it this week. So let's talk about it soon. Okay. <laughs> it's a work in progress. We, we, we have a um, bunch of feelers out there. People have the film and um, we're hoping to get a distributor soon. Well, excellent. We, we will be keeping an eye out for that and we'll certainly be informing everybody in uh, our networks uh, to be on the lookout for this uh, great film called In a Different Key. Karen Zucker, John Donvan, thank you so much for your time and thank you for this film. This has been great. Can we say thank you back to um, Filmmakers Collaborative also? You certainly um, can. Um, has been really taught. We did not know anything about how to do any of this. And when we started the film site, you know, we know how to put a camera up and interview somebody, but the the larger structure of financing a film and making connections, uh, we knew nothing. And Filmmakers Collaborative was great, really fantastic in holding our hands through that process. And just, we really feel like um, they're a partner in it all the way. So I just wanted to say that. I don't know if Karen, if you feel. Yeah. Laura and and Kathleen really, uh, we wouldn't have a movie without uh, having joined forces with them. 
That is great to hear. And it's a fantastic organization. And, you know, it's just so wonderful that it, it helps make possible films like yours. So thank thank you. you. Thank you again for your time. And, um, like I said, I can't wait to see what happens with the film once it's out in the world. 